listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. Welcome back to our Broken Heroes sermon series. Over the past few months, we have had the opportunity to look at some issues that are really pretty close to the bone. We've talked about things like anger and gossip and passive parenting and lust and and doubt, just to name a few. And these were all issues that these well-known heroes of the faith struggled with as well. So if you're here this morning and you've been present with us throughout the rest of the series too, and you're recognizing, man, I don't have it all together, right? Like, I'm not perfect. (laughs) I don't always get it right. You are in good company. You are the ones that Jesus came for, and that's all of us. So today we're talking about conflict, and the way we'll do that is by looking at an example of conflict that we see in the New Testament between the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. So here's what you need to know. Paul was an early church planter. This is what he did with his ministries. He traveled to new areas and planted churches where there weren't any. And he had a, a traveling companion by the name of Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas, they had gone on this first missionary journey together, um, and now they're getting ready to go on their second missionary journey. But as they're preparing and laying out plans, a sharp disagreement occurs. The two of them can't see eye to eye, so listen what happens next. This is Acts 15, 36 through 41. And I'll ask you to rise today for the reading of God's Word. Acts 15, verses 36 through 41. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord. And see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we, uh, we ask today that the words of, of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Paul and Barnabas had a conflict. This is an actual picture of the conflict. I was able to capture that, so you're welcome. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, his cousin, with them, and Paul did not. So as I was researching this and looking into it, my question was, okay, who was right and who was wrong? And the thing is, the Bible doesn't make that abundantly clear. 
And we can sympathize with both sides. We can really see it. Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, which says a lot about him, right? Names meant something back then. He errs more on the side of mercy. And so this guy, John Mark, was actually his cousin. The two of them were related. And so he wants to have mercy on John Mark. He wants to say, look, yeah, he, he messed up on that first missionary journey. He left us, right? But let's give him a second chance here. So that's what Barnabas says. But then you've got Paul on the other side of things. And Paul is saying, look, this guy abandoned us when we needed him the most. Right in that moment on our, our first missionary journey. He's proved himself unreliable. Why would we risk that again? We can see both sides of Paul and Barnabas, right? They both make sense. They're both reasonable. It's not like one was sinful and the other was not. But they couldn't agree. There arose a sharp dispute or disagreement between them, and it resulted in a split. Paul went one way, and he took Silas with him, and then Barnabas went the other way, taking John Mark with him. Man, conflict is tough, isn't it? Especially when it's between Christians like this. It makes us uncomfortable. It gets awkward. So what in the world are we supposed to do with it? And what are we supposed to do with conflict? Because it's unavoidable. Charles Spurgeon said this about conflict, which I thought was very telling. He says, it strikes me that conflict is the principal feature of the Christian life this side of heaven. So here's what I want to do with the rest of our time together this morning. Briefly, I want to address four common myths about conflict, and I want to give them a gospel corrective. So four myths. Myth, myth number one, conflict is bad, so we should avoid it at all costs. Uh, before we do that, though, I think it might be helpful to give a definition, a working definition for what we're talking about with conflict. So we'll consider conflict a difference in opinion that frustrates someone's goals or desires. A difference in opinion that frustrates someone's goals or desires. This comes from an, an organization called Ambassadors of Reconciliation. They put out a lot of good material on conflict and, and reconciliation. Now, there are all sorts of, of causes of conflict, right? And I want you to hear me when I say this. Not every one of them is sinful. Sometimes it's, it's just something gets lost in translation, or there's a misunderstanding, miscommunication, right? Further clarification is needed. Or maybe two people just have like different goals and expectations for what they want to happen and how they desire things to pan out, right? Neither is more right than the other one. They're just different. Other times, though, conflict comes from, it springs up from the selfish desires and ambitions in our own hearts, as James tells us in James 4, Right? We both want something. Only one of us can have it, so we're going to fight. Fight about it. Now, important caveat here. Division and disagreement are not the same thing. Division and disagreement are not the same thing. They're not. What does God desire for His church? Well, He, he desires unity. And what's the opposite of unity? Well, it's division. This is what He warns us against. Satan loves to get in there and drive a wedge between believers. He loves nothing more than that. 
But that division is different from disagreement. Disagreement isn't intrinsically bad. In fact, one of the, one of the signs of a mature relationship is that we're able to disagree well without tearing each other's heads off, right? But here's the thing. Conflict is an opportunity to glorify God. I don't know about you, but whenever a conflict comes up in my life, I often see it as the hurdle I need to get over so that I can get on doing like the, the real stuff God has me to do. Right? Okay, there, there's this, this barrier that's this conflict with this person, this difficult conversation I have to have, whatever. Let me do whatever I got to do to get over that so that I can do the real work of God's calling in my life. What if that hurdle is the real work he's got me to do? What if conflict and the way we handle and manage conflict was a way to glorify God? It's a chance to provide a witness to a watching world about how to disagree well, even passionately, in a God-glorifying way, where we treat our brother and sister in Christ not as an opponent to be defeated, but as someone for whom Christ died. So that's myth number one. Conflict's bad and we should avoid it at all costs. Myth number two. Every point of disagreement needs to be resolved. There's this idea out there sometimes in Christian circles um, that we're all supposed to be and think and feel the same. Homogeneity would be a fancy term to describe this. But honestly, think of how boring life would be if we were all the same, right? If we always thought identically, never had different opinions, came at every issue from exactly the same point of view, God values diversity in the body of Christ. Did you know that? Diversity is not a liability, but an asset, which is different from how we often look at it. But listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 4. He says, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of activities. But it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. One body, many members. The, the parts are different. And that is by design. Right? If we were all arms or, or legs, you would call that what? Like a genetic mutation or something. We all have different backgrounds and, and skills and spiritual gifts, so our differences are actually a good thing. And yet, we're all part of the same body. We're all part of the body of Christ. And the truth is that if we make it our goal in life, to resolve every point of disagreement with everyone, that's all we're going to do all day, every day. Right? Seeing eye to eye isn't the goal. Unity is the goal. Those aren't the same. Seeing eye to eye is not the goal. Unity is the goal. And in order for unity to happen, we have to, not always, but most of the time, be willing to overlook differences or wrongs that are done to us. So that's myth number two. Every point of disagreement needs to be figured out, needs to be reconciled. 
Myth number three, I can't forgive that other person until they admit what they did was wrong. I can't forgive that other person until they admit what they did was wrong to me. That sound familiar? I, I found myself following this path from time to time. So this is a little bit different of a case. It's not just different opinions, but here would be an example where wrong was perpetrated and someone was hurt. And I hear this reaction all the time, and I've said it to myself, like, man, I, I just want to move beyond this conflict that we're having. Like, I, I want to move past it. I want to reconcile with this person. I want us to be on the same page about things. But I can't, because they won't admit what they did was wrong. They won't confess it. They're not even aware of it. Nothing ever changes, so I can't forgive them. Does this sound familiar? It's okay. You can nod. Here's the distinction we as Christians need to make, though. There's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. The difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. We can actually forgive someone even if they won't admit they've done something wrong, but we can't reconcile with them because for that to happen, both parties have to be willing to come to the table and owning up to their part in things, right? And that requires repentance on the part of the offender. But here's the thing about forgiveness, though. At least it's forgiveness the way that the Bible talks about it. Forgiveness is not dependent upon the behavior of the offender, but the heart of the forgiver. Forgiveness isn't dependent upon the behavior of the offender, but the heart of the giver. If we need an example of this, all we have to do is look to Jesus on the cross. So you picture this scene. He's dying. He's, he's been crucified by, by the Romans. People are spitting on him and, and mocking him and taking his clothes. And what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They didn't know they were doing wrong, and yet Jesus forgave them anyway, didn't he? That's myth number three. I can't forgive the other person until they admit what they did was wrong. Myth number four, I did nothing wrong. <laughs> I did nothing wrong. It wasn't me. This is another picture of that I think encapsulates this attitude very well. It's all their fault. I didn't do anything. I, I'm innocent. It's a pretty common response when we get offended, isn't it? I've caught myself saying it from time to time, claiming complete innocence, setting up this courtroom in my mind where I'm purely the victim and the other person is the accused, right? They're the guilty party who committed all of these crimes against me. And I would like nothing more than to pound down my gavel and say, off with their heads. But in most cases, if I really stop to think about it, and I'm brave enough to ask the question, how have I contributed to this problem? I'm not going to come up blank. Because I'm human. In other words, I'm a sinner, which means that I can't claim innocence. 
Because as 1 John 1.8 tells us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So really the first step to resolving any conflict is getting the log out of our own eye. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Listen to this. He says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? Very powerful visual, isn't it? You hypocrite, he says, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly just take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, of course, this isn't to say that every conflict is 50-50, where, where each party contributes 50%. Sometimes it's 60-40, sometimes it's 90-10, but when has kept, keeping track ever helped anyone? As Jesus tells us, love keeps no record of wrongs. The point in all of this is, is that the only person whose actions we're responsible for is our own. So these are kind of four common myths about conflict and, and our conflict with each other. But I want to shift gears here. And let's ask the question, how does God deal with conflict? How does God deal with conflict? As we consider this, I want to invite you to join with me in reading this passage from 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19. So please say this with me. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. This is how God resolves conflict. Human beings have a big conflict with God. It's called sin. Sin isn't just about words and actions that we do. It's about the condition of the human heart, the default, out-of-the-box condition, which always seeks its own good above all things. My will rather than thy will be done. That's the t-shirt Every human being is born to this world wearing, metaphorically. So humans have a conflict with God. In fact, Scripture says we are enemies by nature. But it also tells us that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. So God's response to our cosmic conflict with Him was to bring reconciliation through the shed blood of Jesus, which we receive by faith. See, we rightly deserved condemnation. But He gave us mercy. We deserved eternal wrath, but He gave us eternal life. He addresses our conflict head-on, not by avoiding it, not by getting angry, but by dealing with it, by sacrificing His own life for us. 
the very ones who insisted on having our own way. Here's what this boils down to. Here's how this matters for your daily life. Since God reconciles us to himself, we also ought to be reconciled to others. So I wonder as, as you hear that and as you reflect on that, is there someone in your life you need to forgive? Someone you need to be reconciled with? What would it look like to confess that to God? What would it look like to take the first step toward that other person? As we wrap up, let's circle back to Paul and Barnabas. They, they had this huge conflict over John Mark, right? And they, they split ways. They each went their own separate ways. But how does the story end? Did Paul and Barnabas ever resolve their conflict? Did they reconcile? Well, Scripture doesn't give detailed answers to this, but we do get some hints. In the book of Colossians, which was written after Acts, Paul tells the church there to welcome Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. In Philemon 23, Paul calls Mark a fellow worker. And in 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul instructs Timothy to get Mark and bring him to him because he is very useful to him in ministry. See, all the scriptural evidence that we have indicates that Paul and Barnabas' disagreement did not destroy their relationship. If you read through Paul's letters, not once does he ever badmouth Barnabas. And despite John Mark's desertion on their first ministry journey, what happens? Well, Paul eventually takes him back and they become ministry partners again. And in the end, God even used this sharp disagreement to send out two teams of missionaries rather than just one. And as a result, more people were brought into the kingdom. See, conflict is unavoidable. But God can always redeem it. And because He reconciles and restores us to Himself we also ought to desire reconciliation and restoration with others. As Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5, 19-20, God has entrusted us with the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. You, brother and sister in Christ, are an ambassador of reconciliation. Therefore, go and be reconciled. Amen. I invite you to come back next week when we'll continue our series uh, by discussing Naaman's pride. Let's pray. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's pastor K-J-O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. 
May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen.